This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today, we'll talk with M.L. Buckman about his novel, Take Over at Midnight. Then PW Mystery and Thriller Reviews editor Peter Cannon will tell us about Martin Gardner's fascinating autobiography. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got a new number one in fiction this week. It's James Patterson mm. with Cross My Heart, and mm. that's the the newest Alex Cross mystery and uh, thriller, I should say. Uh, he's been writing about Alex Cross for 20 years. Uh, My gosh. Just got this real ongoing, serious career. Uh, and uh, it, it was the Along Came a Spider was the very first one. And uh, his author bio calls it the most popular detective series of the past 25 years, which, hmm, you know, mm. there's probably an argument to be made there, but no question that as soon as a book of his mm-hmm. comes out, it's guaranteed to shoot straight to the top wow. of our bestseller list. Uh, and indeed, this one has, it just rocketed right up there, sold over 66,000 copies in one week. So that's, wow. uh, that's pretty impressive. And uh, also new to the list this week, uh, number 13 is The Supreme Macaroni Company. And that's by Adriana Trigiani. Ah, sure. And uh, she's the author of The Shoemaker's Wife, and here she explores the delicate balance and unbalance between work, family, and love. And PW's review says, uh, the pages detailing how Valentine practices her craft of shoemaking are superb. That's not something you see every day. Mm-hmm. And that Trigiani's ability to bring the large, warm, enveloping, if somewhat dysfunctional family to life will keep any reader engrossed and entertained. And her books, uh, her last four books, I guess, uh, have all hit to the bestseller list. So uh, she's one who's a very popular writer. Yeah, absolutely. And um, she sold 9,800 copies, 9,827 to get to number 13 on our hardcover fiction bestseller list. Oh, it's interesting to see those numbers. And, you know, beyond that, there's not, there's not a lot of change. Um, the only other particularly notable jump is that uh, Robert Galbraith, who we all know, is J.K. Rowling uh, as the cuckoo's calling up at number 24 last week it was at 41 and uh, I am wondering what suddenly led to that to that jump but mm-hmm. you know it's not a big jump in terms of sales numbers last week it sold 2200 copies this week it sold 3800 mm. so uh, something caused a spike somewhere sure. maybe a lot of people decide it would make a good gift book right exactly uh, sure we're, we're definitely starting to see those uh, post Thanksgiving Black Friday yeah sales or, spikes or with all the travel over Thanksgiving might mm-hmm. be just a perfect one to pick up at your uh, airport bookstore and Actually, take with I you. Actually, I bet you're right. 
I bet you're yeah, right. That yeah. it's, that's just something, you know, a lot of people are there in the airport bookstore and it's probably there on the stand and you just, right. you pick it up and read it while you're waiting for your flight. You can read this in a couple of hours. Perfect. Very smart, Mark. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> well, so that's it for uh, for the fiction list. What's happening in nonfiction? Well, we've got one in the top, one new one in the top 15. This is at number nine. This is uh, Gary uh, Vaynerchuk. He's a, uh, uh, he's a social media expert uh, and and this book is called Jab, 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 Right Hook, How to Tell Your Story in a Noisy Social World. Now, he uh, originally expanded his uh, parents, his family's wine store from $3 million to $140, I'm sorry, to $45 million, uh, by starting a uh, winelibrary.com, which is a very popular uh, uh, website for wine lovers and wine consumers and buyers. Now, this book is... Uh, jab 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 right hook is is the whole idea of this is it's about uh by jabbing as it were at your customers or or their uh, uh opponents you you kind of uh, knock their opponents out uh this is all through social me- social media or you weaken your customers resistance and then with a final right hook you uh kind of direct traffic sales uh uh you direct traffic to to sales so that's basically the premise of this book it sounds very and aggressive it sounds very aggressive but then again that social media world may seem very uh, uh, user friendly but it is so aggressive for oh I think that, that depends my <laughs> social media world is very warm and fuzzy and I'm sure no when it comes to businesses I think no, it that's can be true. very competitive that's true so and, and that's at number nine in our book all right well that's it for the bestseller list then not a lot of change but uh, maybe something will happen next week that's a little more exciting we'll see yes just as we go into the uh uh the the gift buying season absolutely uh, we'll see what happens after uh that the, the thanksgiving uh sales so yep well, i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up ml buckman will tell us what it's like to be a man writing romance novels we'll be right back Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got M.L. Buckman on the line. He's the author of Takeover at Midnight, the fourth novel in the Night Stalker series of military romances. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So give us a little bit of an overview of the Night Stalker setting, the series, and this installment. The Night Stalkers is a real-life outfit. They are the people who fly the Special Forces helicopters, like into Bin Laden's compound. That was them. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled on them years ago and was reading about them, got really interested. And their application, I finally read their application. It said, no women may apply. And I went, gee, that sounds like a setting for a romance. And I was off and running. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a setting for a gay romance. So how did you put women into that setting? What I did was I had the women simply be so good that they couldn't keep them out. Mm -hmm. And I chose, there's a particularly nasty machine they fly called the Direct Action Penetrator. It's a very modified Blackhawk. And so I had, it has four seats in it. And that's why the first series of books is four long because I slowly filled each seat with four exceptionally competent women and the men they happen to deserve. In in the military romance field, it's actually very rare to see the male and female leads fighting side by side. Um, what, What led you to decide to put women on the front lines? A couple things. One was because I hadn't seen it done. And the other was 
it was a chance to show, I think, just how powerful women can be in any role. And that's what really interested me is, yeah, I'm pushing some lines because there's fraternization issues here that I do my best to dodge. But that these women are that strong and the men, they're just as strong as the men, just in their own way, in a female way. And I became fascinated by trying to show that. And I, I wanted to uh, to ask you something you had said before this. So you uh, had seen this that no women uh, uh, accepted. Now, you could have taken this anyway. What led you to, to write a romance specifically? I mean, uh, had you read romances before or, or is this something that just intrigued you? Actually, I have. Um, I've always loved love stories. I was raised on Broadway musicals and 1940s black and white shows. Wonderful. Uh, my parents were hooked on them. Uh-huh. So, um, but I've always had strong romantic elements, and I've been trying to find a good platform, so to speak, to try a good romance. And the odd thing about this book was the first one, The Night is Mine was actually a thriller with strong romantic elements. And I sold it to Source Books, which is a romance house, and they said, we want this book really badly, but it's a thriller. And I said, okay. So I threw out 40,000 words and redrafted it as a romance, and she went, you're on. (laughs) Oh, wow, wonderful. And, you know, a a lot of your female characters have broken through glass ceilings and and dealt with sexism in and out of the ranks. How do you address that? Um, part a big chunk of writing is we write and then we steer off into space thoughtfully while we come up with something to write more of. I sort of dodged around the sexism by making the women so strong that anybody who messed with them got smacked down hard. Mm-hmm. Another piece I did was I moved the narrative element into a very, very highly qualified core. The Night Stalkers, you have to be five years in the military before you're allowed to apply. And the application is horrendous. You actually have to volunteer five separate times before you can even get through their application. So I figure I've weeded out a lot of the chaff and focused on people who care about one thing, which is competence. And so that let me push some of those sexism and sexist issues off to the side. And race is also an issue. Um, Your characters, some are white, some are not, and they're also Americans who are in the Middle East. Uh, How do you handle that delicate topic? Oddly enough, I handle it by not mentioning it. Uh, I have a couple characters who, for me, are distinctly black, but I'm not trying to write. I'm a white guy. I'm not trying to write about the black experience. I'm trying to write about somebody who serves who's black. So I simply don't mention it. I do my best to make him sound that way, to make him feel that way. But I just simply don't go there. Mm-hmm. Now, you worked previously as a project manager, but you started writing while on a solo bike trip around the world. Tell us about that trip and what was it about it that got you writing while you were doing it? Um, it, I call it my midlife crisis on wheels. And all you, I tell people it's simple. All you have to do is lose your business, your career, your house, and your car. And then going around the world on a bicycle makes perfect sense. And so I'm out there. I was flying from, I'd been in Japan for a few months, and I was flying from Korea to ride across the Australian outback. 
And I started writing this little vignette about a freshman roommate who killed alarm clocks. He really did. And uh, it turned into my first novel. It just, it kept going. This story came out and these characters came out and I had so much fun doing it that that became my hobby. And for the last 20 years, I have written every spare minute in every corner that I could and have now 20 books out. So where was this bike trip and, and when did you find time to write? Was it uh, as you've just stopped and rested or while you were uh, you know, put up a tent or did you even stay in tents? How did that work? Where, where were you? I was, uh, well, I rode down the west coast of the U.S. to warm up in a friendly country, so to speak. And I went through Japan, across the outback, up through Indonesia, Singapore, across southern India, Israel, up through Greece, Eastern Europe, and over to France. Wow. Uh, 18 months of 11,000 miles, almost all of it on my own. And so I had a lot of time while you're riding to think, but you can't ride more than probably four or five hours a day unless you're really pushing at a moment. And so I would sit down and I would just start writing each evening or in the afternoon in camp. And this book kept occupying me more and more. And I actually finished the first book while on my trip. And that turned into my first novel sale. Wow. And you've written in a whole lot of genres. Uh, what do you what do you like about each of them? Oh, the variety. I I started out as a science fiction nut. There's probably 15 years where I didn't read anything but science fiction. And then I went through a decade of reading nothing but classics. And then I stumbled on romance and I started reading that. And it's, I read everything. And so a chance to write in each of those is so much fun. In the science fiction and fantasy, I get to really ask the what if question completely out of the box. You know, what if the age of technology ended in a night and the second dark ages came in? Uh, but sometimes I get to just play and have fun, like my th foodie thriller swap out where the U.S. Special Forces are hunting down TV's next network chefs. Uh, and then the romance, I get to really look at what it is to be in love, what it means to fall in love, what it means to the challenges we have to face to come together and understand each other. So all of those actually do combine under one single umbrella, which is written, I'm looking at it, it's right on my wall, which says, to champion the human spirit. And that's my theme through all my books. And you seem to have uh, uh, quite a few interests outside of writing, sailboating, designing houses, and cooking, and, and has each of these uh, uh, kind of worked their way into your own writing? Uh, you just mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the cookbook one. Oh, absolutely. I actually have a foodie contemporary romance series called Angela's Hearth. The takeover at midnight, um, the fact that they're in Washington, D.C. was a class trip I took with my stepdaughter. The uh, Their flight down to Florida and flying out of there is an area I'm interested in. In book two, they go uh, on a sailing vacation. And I, that's my sailboat in that book. Hmm. And um, actually, no, that was one I was a guest on. It's a different book that my sailboat was in. I rebuilt a 50-foot sailboat back in the 80s. So, yes, everything keeps getting integrated and built back in. 
Emily Beale being a chef in the White House in the first book was my love of cooking. And I've been reading about what the White House chefs are and what they do that's different. And it was a chance to play with all that and learn more about that world. And I love to cook, so it works. Wow. What's it like for you being a man in the very female-dominated romance writing world? It's interesting. I get a couple of modern reactions and one past reaction, um, and I'll do them backwards like that. The modern reaction is typically one of either, I'm. why would I read a romance written by a man? Then surprise when they do and they like it. Mm -hmm. uh, but within the writing community, the arms are wide open. They, they welcome me and say, wow, it's so great to see a man here writing as well. And then the past is actually, I had never read a romance until my publisher of my first science fiction book took me to the Romance Writers of America National Conference. We're talking about 1,800 women heavily focused on the business of writing romance. I've been there. It's an amazing experience. It's incredible. I was one of seven guys that year, mm -hmm. four of whom were taken by my publisher to prove a point that men write romance, even though I had written a fantasy. And um, I was completely dismissed. Everybody assumed I was a boyfriend or a husband or a hanger on. And the fact that I had a first sale sticker just made them look at me strangely. Agents wouldn't speak to me. Editors brushed by me. I actually shut down sessions by asking a question and the session would go, hold it. Are you really here as a writer? Oh, okay. Then we'll answer your question. Um, and it was fascinating. I started talking to women about that experience and they said, yeah, welcome to my world. And that gave me a huge amount of insight that I have tried to bring into my romances of that glass ceiling that you mentioned earlier, just what they have to deal with and what they have to go through to exist in our male-oriented society. And that's one of the, the stereotypes I, I'm doing my best to break because I hate it so much. It makes me so crazy. And I, I could tell you've, uh, you you use your initials M.L. Buckman in, in ways that many women writers have uh, used their, their first initials rather than a, a first name. And have you done this because uh, you weren't taken seriously as a romance writer? I did it for two reasons. Uh, one was I wanted to make, you also notice my picture isn't on the book. Right, exactly. We, I've noticed. Or a bio. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to make the threshold of entry into the book for female romance readers to be easy. But we didn't want to deceive them. So if you drill down at all, I signed my emails, ML Matt Buckman. Um, the other reason I rather like is it's sort of a turnabout is fair play. All these women to get accepted in science fictions and thrillers and all had to go to initials or the phone book. You know, the way you hid was you had initials, but oh my God, that said it was a woman anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a guy hiding in romance in a way, and I thought it was just a real turnabout is fair play thing. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I was looking at your, your biography. It's very carefully gender neutral, ML and family live on an island in the Pacific Northwest. There's there's no hint there. Yeah. And and speaking of family, you, you've described yourself as a family man, and you do a lot with your son, like Taekwondo, I think. How has your family relationships inform your writing? 
actually it's stepdaughter um, that we I did we both got our black belts together in her teens, which was kind of interesting because in those teen years when we had nothing else to talk about, we had Taekwondo. And that really let us get through those years very smoothly. Wonderful kid. I'm, don't even get me started on her. Uh, absolutely <laughs> love her. Right. But um, the way family has shaped me is at about 25, I knew I wanted family. The fact that it took me till 40 to find it is a different issue. But in all my writing, I try to bring that to the fore. That's where Dilia came in, in book two. She's a found war orphan who ends up being a key element of the love of the people. Uh, at the end of this book, Emily, well, I don't want to give a spoiler, but their relationship is progressing as well with Mark. And... I find that that helps carry forward that the importance of family, because I feel that's where it all starts. And that's what I try to bring in, because it certainly has changed my life. We've been talking with M.L. Bachman, and you can find his book, Takeover at Midnight, in stores right now. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Been a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Mystery and Thriller Reviews editor Peter Cannon tells us about his lifelong love for the works of Martin Gardner, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Mystery and Thriller Reviews editor Peter Cannon is here to talk about Martin Gardner's autobiography. Hello, Peter. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Always good to have you here. So tell us about this book. You found it through a bit of serendipity. That's right. I consider myself a big Martin Gardner fan. I own dozens of his nearly 100 books, and one day I was in a Barnes & Noble uh, browsing in the science math section and lo and behold there's this Martin Gardner book I'd never heard of uh, Hocus Pocus absolute Hocus Pocus I can never quite remember the title <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Martin Gardner had died three years before mm-hmm. and I said my goodness what's he doing with a new book well my birthday was coming up soon so I ensured that my children gave it to me. <laughs> oh, wow. Very, very subtle of you. As a present. I may even have started it before I actually officially received it. <laughs> well, you probably want to know who Martin Gardner is. I was just going to ask, tell us a little bit about Mar- Martin Gardner and, and about this, this uh, autobiography. Well, Martin Gardner is probably best known as the Scientific American Mathematical Games columnist for many years. It was, I believe, one of the most popular features in, in that magazine. My father was a subscriber to uh, Scientific American and as someone who was interested in math. I discovered there was this guy writing fun things about math, and apparently there are a lot of other people in the world who were fans of this particular column. Uh, these were collected in many collections. Gardner wrote many other books. He was a contributor to a variety of journals, including the Skeptical Inquirer. 
He was a man very much interested in literature, The Wizard of Oz, that series was very uh, you know, high on his list as you know, a ch childhood favorite. And of course, the annotated Alice, that's probably his, his other big mm -hmm. contribution. That was definitely, that was actually one of my birthday presents to myself many years ago was the, the big, beautiful, hardcover edition of The Annotated Alice. But that's because I'd grown up reading a tattered paperback of it. It's just, it's, it's an indispensable work. Yes, it's, it's actually been expanded and improved o over the years. And uh, Norton, I guess, has puts out now the, the definitive mm -hmm. uh, edition. Well, I should say also, uh, October was the month when Gardner fans celebrate his life uh, because his birthday was October 21st. Now, even before he died in 2010, people were holding gatherings for Gardner. I, th I believe these were invitation only, and typically, well, his fans, but also mathematicians, magicians, philosophers, anyone who had an interest in, in him and his writings would, would hold these meetings and uh, talk about you know new mathematical games or uh, magic tricks. And I think on one, one occasion he actually attended uh, one of these events. But in his last years he was living in a retirement home in Norman, Oklahoma, near where he grew up. Mm -hmm. He had a son who was a professor at the local university nearby who could look after him. Uh, a few years ago for PW, I actually went out there and interviewed him for an author profile. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me anyway, a, a thrill of a lifetime just to be able to sit with this man and chat about these things uh, for hours. And so, so picking up his autobiography, when when was it written, and how long had he been working on it? Do you think? And well, tell us your experience with it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I read this, and the, the book itself has absolutely no clue as to when it was written, or why he wrote it. By coincidence, uh, one of one event celebrating Gardner's life uh, was held recently nearby at the uh, National Museum of Mathematics on Ma uh, Madison Square. Mm. And there was a panel one night that included actually Gardner's son, whom I'd met uh, in Norman, and others who were friends of his. So actually, thanks to you, Rose, I learned about this <laughs> <laughs> about a day before. And, wow. I, and I cleared the, my schedule and made sure to uh, attend. And during question time, I, I asked his son James, well, gosh, where, where did this uh, autobiography come from? And his son said, well, you know, dad was always looking to keep busy. I mean, this was a man in his 90s. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he died when he was 95. He needed another project when I visited him. You know, he was still working on, on new books, new ideas, and he was his own agent. He didn't have a computer. He sort of did things the old-fashioned uh, <laughs> writing handwritten notes. Well, no, actually, they were, they were typed. But uh, anyway, he was an inspiration to see how active he was mentally uh, into his 90s. Now, I should say, to be perfectly honest, Undiluted Hocus Pocus is not his best book. It is rambling. It's anecdotal. Uh, but it has a lot of information about his early life mm -hmm. that, for someone like me who's a fan, uh, was uh, fascinating to learn. And anyway, his son explained that 
he wrote it uh, right up to the end of his life. He may have, may have finished it just a few months before he died. Hmm. Uh, and it, you know, I guess took him less than a, than a year to uh, uh, put together. And the reason for the gap between um, 2010 when he died and today is that uh, his son just had more pressing things to do with settling his estate mm -hmm. and getting this uh, autobiography out. You know, it wasn't a top priority. It's from Princeton University Press, by the way. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. So they had. So he sent it to them, and they they bought it and published it. Right. I'm not quite sure whether he, you know, when he exactly got a contract, right, right. or whether his son later got the contract. Right. But um, anyway, it was it was something that was in the pipeline, and and you know, finally now has come out to the delight of me and other Gardner fans. Wow, wonderful. And and tell us a little bit about what's in it. I mean, you say it's very anecdotal. Uh, is it really just a focus on his early life, or is it an overview of his life? It's entirely? it's an overview of his entire life and career, and it, it it hits the high spots. It's not that long, and he really doesn't go into great depth. And it it helps to be familiar with his other writings. And right. on the other hand, who's going to read this unless you're already well acquainted sure. with his other works. So there are a lot of references to people, his his friends, fans, who, who included uh, Salvador Dali, for example, mm -hmm. uh, who was wow. in, interested in yeah. sort of geometry and his paintings and so forth. Yeah. And even uh, Vladimir uh, Nabokov w was a fan and corresponded with him and in his uh, impenetrable novel Ada has a <laughs> reference to Gardner. Really? Although it's Gardner, I-N-E-R. Right. Ah, okay. But, uh, you know, so there are all these sort of weird, unexpected people <laughs> who, who, who find a connection uh, with him. So there, there are a lot of names, and you could say, well, gosh, I wish in some cases there had been a little context about who these, who these people are. But as I say, uh, if you're already familiar with, with his other major works, you're, you're not going to have a problem reading it. Sure. And for yeah. people who aren't familiar, where would you suggest they start? Well, uh, perhaps uh, his wise of a philosophical scrivener, which sort of sets out his philosophy. He was raised, uh, you know, in... in well, so some some sort of uh, Christian church, and he became a fundamentalist for a while, mm -hmm. and then he went to the University of Chicago, and was exposed to some secular types, and and he he basically lost his faith, and yet he still believed in 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 God in in some form, but not in a conventional mm -hmm. re religious form. A lot of people think, well, gosh, he must have been an atheist or, or you know, secular humanist. But in fact, he retained a, a tinge of his uh, religiousness from his youth. Wow. Well, how wonderful is it that you happen upon this book in a bookstore and not yeah. necessarily online? That I goes mean. to show it was much more exciting to see it in the flesh sure. than, than if I'd been... <laughs> You know, Googling Martin Gardner, where, you know, I might well have seen it. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> before I happened to stumble into it in a bookstore. 
Well, Peter, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 